Hey, good morning. You know, uh, this Sunday, of course, we want to celebrate the founding of our country. You know, it's a little disappointing. This is the first time that I recall people trying to tear down and denigrate and defile this celebration because uh, they see that we have imperfection and evil in our country. Do we? Yeah, we do. Now, it might not be the same evil that they recognize, but we do. And uh, this is a time when, uh, you know, we just have all kinds of crazy things going on. Uh, and we need to recognize that. Uh, but like uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, you know, this time of celebration has kind of become what I call ubiquitous. It's kind of become part of the culture. So whether it's stuffing yourself with stuffed turkey or Santa Claus and elves or bunnies and, you know, hats and that sort of thing, you know, the 4th of July to a lot of people have become, well, you know, great big fireworks demonstrations and, and picnics and lemonade or whatever. Uh, you know, you got to ask the question, do young people really understand why we're celebrating? Okay, which is the fact that men and women died so that we would not have to continue under an unjust king, but rather form an imperfect, yes, but better form of government than anybody else has. And so, this is a segue. Uh, Christy and I spent the last uh, week or so in North Carolina to visit her family. And while we were there, we went to a battlefield uh, that was part of the War for Independence. And in the middle of that battlefield is this huge monument to the hero of that particular battle, a guy named General Nathaniel Green. And everything around that battlefield is now called Greensboro. He was a hero. And on that monument, you see all of these battles in which he commanded troops. But things are not always as they seem. Remember that. They're not always as they seem. You see, General Green never won any of those battles. Instead, he followed the, the, uh, the colony's plan, a strategy, of battling the most powerful army in the world by engagement and retreat, once af one, one after another, in order to wear them out. In fact, the battle at Greensboro basically ended up in a draw. Both sides just kind of went away after nobody, certainly the Redcoats, didn't gain anything. And that led to the discouragement of the British general, General Cornwallis. He gave up on his efforts to recruit British loyalists in the South to fight against the, the colonists. And he decided to go back to the northern uh, uh, area for fighting, and he ended up in Virginia, ended up at a place called Yorktown, where he was surrounded by George Washington's army and had to surrender, which led to the end of the war and our independence. 
Green's still a hero. And that's what applies to the first of our Beatitudes that we're going to study today. We're in a short series during the summer here on the Beatitudes. And uh, it's important to understand their importance. They are vital to the walk of a Christian. And the first one isn't as it seems. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, in our modern language, the word meek conjures up words like weak and wimp. That, that, that modern understanding is not the thing that most men would aspire to. Today, however, due to the confusion over basic biology, some males have actually developed backbones of spaghetti. That is not the meekness of which Christ speaks. It is not as it appears. Now, while being poor in spirit and mourning over sin that we studied last month are inward attitudes, meekness has to do with how we relate to others outwardly. Over time, words do change in their connotations and uh, how they're applied and understood. But the question is not what do we understand the word meek to mean, but what does the Bible in the original language intend to convey? Okay? So the Greek word for meek is praus, which is, of course, humble, gentle, patient, but possessing a powerful personality, able to resist reaction. The mental picture you should get of the biblical meekness is a stallion, a powerful stallion, who has been broken and able to be ridden instead of running wild. Uh, a meek person is one, when criticized, reviled, or challenged, can re resist the temptation to become retaliatory, resentful, or vengeful. And it, it requires a strong self-control and a quiet, willing, and cheerful submission to God. So... Biblical meekness is best described as power under control. It's sometimes called gentle strength. Now, I understand that many of you have or, or are in the process of reading a book called Gentle and Lowly. And that comes from Matthew 11 when Jesus describes himself. The word gentle is rendered meek in other translations. So the two are basically synonyms. And gentle is a word that forms the basis of a word that has pretty much gone out of use. The word gentleman. The concept of a gentleman was a positive term, but it's lost much of its character today. In fact, it's been hijacked. Uh, and it's a place where males go uh, called gentleman's club, which is anything but filled with gentlemen. The words ladies and gentlemen actually mean something much more than one who's older than an adolescent, more than how a male or a female presents or uses one's body. Now, getting back to basics here, Genesis and Jesus both say that God created mankind male and female. We all know that. However, Paul says there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Believe me, Paul is not contradicting Jesus. Rather, he's saying that God loves, uses, and draws men and women equally, and we are all equal in value and dignity before God. But our, but our culture has become bi, bipolar. I mean, some men uh, have become more self-centered and abusive, but we've always had those types, and they, were, they used to be called brutes. Other men likewise become more self-centered, but feminized, hypersensitive, and whiny. Both are what were called ungentlemanly just a few decades ago. Sometimes, sadly, we see this in women as well. Society ignores science, cancels the distinction between the sexes. It's become more self-serving, licentious, meaningless, and purposeless. The culture disdains the submission of a wife to her husband, yet at the same time encourages a woman to view herself as an object to satisfy the lust of men. Go figure. In that process, it's, we've lost the concept of ladylike and gentlemanly deportment more common in the past. Now, think about that. By anybody's standard, is that a positive evolution? Now, we still retain some idea of what it means to be manly, but have we forgotten what it means to be gentle manly? Remember the traits, the customs that we used to see of things like standing when a woman or an older person entered the room, giving up your seat for a lady or a child in a crowded venue, holding the door open for a woman and her kids. Pulling a chair out to seat somebody. Just being polite and courteous seems kind of out of fashion today. Now, we should always avoid even the appearance of self-righteousness, but Christ followers should never abandon gentle conduct just because it's easier or more popular. So how do we distinguish between a true gentleman or a lady and a mere natural person. Actually, the contrast is quite stark. A natural man will resemble what's described in Galatians 5 uh, as the deeds of the flesh. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So a gentleman or a lady, on the other hand, will look more like the fruits of the Spirit in the same passage. They'll, they'll express love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul states here that no one would ever outlaw those qualities. Even if you're talking to an atheist, an anti-Christian, you will never go wrong. You will always gain respect. No one will ever criticize you for demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. But meekness only comes when a Christian is spirit-controlled. How, do, how does one acquire meekness or become a true gentleman or a lady? 
Meekness or gentility is best acquired by knowing and applying God's wisdom in our responses, in words and actions to difficulties. In order to respond in wisdom, we must be well acquainted with the wisdom manual, and you can hear it coming. Ladies and gentlemen, the key to your great surprise is three words. Read your Bible, okay? That's how you get it. The expanded version says read and apply your Bible daily. Daily. Christ himself characterizes himself as a gentleman in Matthew 11 that I mentioned before. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So when we take on the yoke of Christ, we yield our rights to do what we please, and we learn the wishes of Christ, our leader, and we follow him. If Christians take on a yoke other than Christ, it's like yoking an ox and a donkey together. They pull against each other, and the yoke rubs them both raw. Our quest for being ladies and gentlemen comes down to being yoked to, to knowing, to following, and becoming more like Christ. Now, it always helps to have an example. And uh, uh, only probably Larry McFall and I can really appreciate this, maybe a few others of you, like I wrestled in high school, okay? This is not about me, but I've experienced this. The object in wrestling is ideally to pin your opponent which usually involves uh, getting into their body and taking them down or slamming them down on the mat and then prying them off their elbows and knees or their stomach and getting them on their backs and then thrusting your chin into their chest to get their shoulder blades on the mat for a count of three. Okay? Did I get that right, Larry? Okay, thank you. (laughs) That's what I recall anyway. So uh, while uh, pulling of hair and biting and striking is illegal, I can assure you that there is no part of the body that is out of bounds for, for handling, for violent force, and contortion. Now, though the sport of wrestling is not particularly gentle, one can be a gentleman and a good wrestler at the same time. Uh, several years after I left high school, uh, the state of Iowa, where wrestling is really big, they decided they would allow uh, girls to wrestle against boys. And you might think that's a non-starter, but think about this. In the different weight classes, I think in high school it starts at about 98 pounds, okay? So a girl may not have the upper body strength of a somebody in the lower weight classes, but she's probably more flexible, which is a huge advantage, so she might be able to compete with somebody in, that, in those, those lower classes. Uh, so uh, when this happened, a young man by the name of Joel Northrup made it to the state wrestling tournament where he was matched against one of the first girls to make it into the tournament. In a brief statement, Northrop expressed respect for the female wrestler. However, he said, because wrestling is a combat sport and it can be violent at times, 
As a matter of conscience and my faith, I do not believe it's appropriate for a boy to engage a girl in this manner. Therefore, Joel forfeited his right to compete for the championship, and in the process, showed himself to be not a coward, but a gentleman. What a contrast to what we see today. Even better examples of a meekness are the countless brave souls who we memorialized last month and who we memorialize tomorrow, who gave their lives out of loyalty and love for their family and their country. Now, if they did that for them, shouldn't we be willing to do that for a God who created us, gave us existence, and then sent his son to die so that we might spend eternity with him? In fact, you could say that blessed are the meek, for they shall die. It's not a very cheery thought. But what do I mean by that? In John 12, Jesus said, Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. There's an analogy here. Death is necessary to produce both wheat and meekness. Inside each grain of wheat is a wheat germ designed to grow into a wheat stalk and produce the fruit of more wheat. For this to occur, the grain must be buried in the ground, which starts that process of breaking open the outer coat or the husk of the grain. The grain of wheat must have its body broken and literally die itself in order to produce more wheat. This breaking allows moisture and oxygen to enter the seed, nourishing the wheat germ uh, for the process that we call germination. Paul expressed in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In order for the Christ in me to bear the fruit of meekness, I must die to self daily. I've got to stop focusing on what I want and my importance and start seeking God's best and his purpose in all areas of the life that he has given me. Of course, the best example is Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, God in the flesh, who became our sacrificial lamb and yielded all of his rights. He yielded the right to a good reputation, took on the form of a bondservant to be scorned and mocked. Real to the fight, the right to be the master. He knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples. The right to physical comfort. He had no place to lay his head. Even the right to make his own decisions. On the cross, he said, not my will, but thine. So how do we become meek? We follow the leader. In Luke 9, it says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So as believers, we're called to be Christ-like ladies and gentlemen, to live with power under God's control. It is truly the meek who are really the powerful. Moving on. Uh, for those who are poor in spirit, mourn over sin, humble and gentle, 
the real, natural, and intense and painful goal is righteousness, for which we need a driving passion, just like physical hunger and thirst. So the next beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This teaching explains the passion Jesus intends for our quest for righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an evangelical preacher in Britain during the 20th century, and he said this, this beatitude, hunger and thirsting, again, follows logically from the previous ones. It is a statement to which all the others lead. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is with you, is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, however, then you had better examine the foundations again. This one short verse of Scripture brings to us an incredible message of hope. However, while satisfaction is available, it only comes through Christ. You know, we have a faint sense of physical hunger, hunger and thirst. You know, you know, when we go, we miss a McDonald's for one meal or whatever. I mean, we think we're hungry. But nothing like the people in third world countries where hungering and thirsting is a daily pursuit. Let's take a look at what Jesus was trying to convey with these two words. Hungering and thirsting in the Greek mean just what we think they mean. Uh, hunger and thirst are God-given impulses, and when they're stirred, they motivate us to seek out an essential of life until it's satisfied. Used metaphorically as it is here, it's to express seeking with an eager and compelling desire or an ardent craving with a profound sense of need. For the unbeliever, hunger and thirst can extend to things not of God, but of the world. Uh, the poet, ancient poet Virgil in his Aeneid said, O cursed hunger after gold, what canst thou not influence the hearts of men to perpetuate? For the Christian, hunger and thirst should drive us to Christ as the only one who can satisfy our daily and deepest needs. John described Jesus as the bread of life as a source of living water. Speaking of God, Job said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, if you remember, last month we disclosed that mourning over sin is an ongoing process. It's something we should continue to do day in and day out. Here, grammatically, the Greek words are likewise in the durative present tense, meaning hunger and thirst is continual. It goes on and on in life and increases in the act of being satisfied. In other words, those who are poor in spirit that mourn over sin and are meek taste and desire more. As the desire grows, the need increases and the craving becomes more intense. So this spiritual hungering and thirsting are not ends in themselves. However, they are a sign of life in the reborn man or woman who has been awakened out of the sleep of spiritual death. Anybody know any new Christians? They often will have uh, great enthusiasm, and that's a good thing. Uh, 
you know, I grew up in the church but never really understood the gospel until I was sitting in a room and a campus evangelist was witnessing to my roommate and it suddenly came together. And so I started to go to crusade meetings and we sang songs like, it only takes a spark to get a fire going or something like that. Some of you remember that. Uh, after a while, uh, you know, I took off with a gal by the name of Sally Bycraft, now known as Sally Iliff, in a Gremlin, which was a car that had no rear end and no traction, in a snowstorm, to attend a crusade conference in Colorado. And after a modicum of training, they sent us out to knock on doors, and uh, I actually got an opportunity to pray with a lady to receive Christ, even though I just met him shortly before. This youthful enthusiasm can sometimes change or diminish with age, but the inward desire to know and follow Christ should never trail off into indifference. Older Christians need to be careful not to confuse their apathy with maturity. Spiritual hunger and thirst are an expression of the internal spirit of true children of God. It expresses itself in the longing to be righteous and holy and to encourage that righteousness within the whole culture. To hunger and thirst like this is to rise out of bed and be excited every day to see what God has in store for you or me. Do we eagerly look forward to meeting challenges that he places in our way every day? The psalmist exemplified the passion required for hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? In these passages... Psalmist exemplifies what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness with passion. This is what ought to characterize our lives as believers. We need to hunger and thirst after God on a daily basis, moment by moment. Hunger and thirst are vital parts of the Christian life, just as we cannot live without satisfying that hunger and thirst physically. As we all know, there are Lots and lots of things that scream for our time and our attention. Some good, some maybe not so good, perhaps some even evil. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not easy. In fact, it's really difficult because we have to make tough decisions to use time wisely. Time is a limited resource. What that means for each of us is that we've got to put aside things and matters that we would rather do, that we would like to do, maybe even good things, to spend time in prayer, Bible study, meditation, and worship daily. It also means that we need to be willing, as Daniel was, to stand alone in the midst of peers as they look down or criticize or even persecute us. We should not be distracted by our flesh and sin. Blaise Pascal said that we all have a God-shaped void in our lives. We are all hungry and thirsty. The problem is that we try to fill, it, fill that emptiness, that hunger and thirsting, 
with things other than the righteousness of God. So some of us may be empty. We've not been satisfied. And we try to fill that God-shaped void in our lives with all kinds of things, but they don't satisfy. C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Of course, you guys know we can't check out of the world. We must live in the world. At the same time, we are not to be of the world, which means we're not to conform to the world. Our lives, amongst others, should be characterized by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Paul exemplifies this in Philippians 3. And there he says, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. What does that mean? He goes on. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, question. Do you and I count the things of the world as rubbish that we may know Christ are we striving to live lives that are godly and righteous we're not talking here about the outward appearance of righteousness but about our heart after what things do our hearts long hunger and thirst Lord willing it is as Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection The next beatitude addresses the topic of mercy. Now, Christian might say, hey, I'm saved. I got it in the bag. Why do I need mercy? Well, let's step back and think about this. What's the purpose of mercy? Mercy has a balancing truth. True mercy only has meaning in the context of true justice. Without justice, you cannot know mercy. If I, as an offender, have no understanding of the concept of justice, I can't acknowledge my offense and agree that my punishment, reproof, and correction is deserved and therefore just. And if I have no recognition of my guilt before a perfectly just God, I have no need of mercy. It's important to define our terms here in order to understand the relationship. I know I've said this before, you may get tired of hearing this, but I really think it's important and easiest to remember that relationship with some simple distinctions. What is justice? It's getting what I deserve. And believe me, I do not want justice for myself. Thankfully, I've got mercy, which is not getting what I deserve. And on top of all that, I've got grace, which is getting what I do not deserve. So a sinning Christian can receive mercy and forgiveness with a clear conscience when he confesses and repents and makes it right. Why 
only because he understands that he deserves the full punishment for his sin which Christ took upon himself on the cross to satisfy the true and perfect justice of God. Mercy is inextricably intertwined with justice. Justice is a balance to mercy. Mercy is a balance to justice. In the classic play and book, Les Miserables, the main character, Valjean, uh, was released from prison. And what he found on the outside was that survival was nearly impossible for a common criminal. So his hardened heart grew even more hard. He, f he finally finds lodging with a kindly bishop of whom he senses that he might be able to take advantage. So upon leaving the bishop's home, he takes some convenient silver that happens to be laying around. And when the police uh, stop him and find the silver, they take him back to the bishop for questioning. And to Valjean's amazement, the bishop tells the police that Valjean was supposed to take the silver and some other household goods that he'd forgotten as well as a gift. The bishop's actions toward Valjean demonstrates the power of mercy as well as the unexpected way that God king, God's kingdom works. The bishop trusted that his treasure was in heaven, so he took a chance to invest his worldly wealth to alter Valjean's bitter and downward course of life. It wasn't Valjean's 20 years in prison, but rather the bishop's kindness that transformed him from a bitter criminal into a powerful agent of mercy himself for the poor, the abandoned, and the orphaned. Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Two words for mercy in the New Testament. Paul uses uh, mercy in Philippians and 2 Corinthians to mean comfort in difficult times and compassion in the heart. It's certainly a valid use. But this is not the word chosen by Jesus for mercy in this beatitude. Instead, this word for mercy used in Matthew 5 is eleo, which means, yes, inward tenderness and compassion coupled with an outward emphasis on expression and manifestation of that tenderness. It means we are emptied of our pride and brought to poverty of spirit, uh, to mourn over our spiritual condition, to receive the grace of meekness, to be gentle, to be hunger, hungry and thirst after righteousness. We who are expected to show mercy have already received it. This LEAO mercy is not tenderness with just mere words of sympathy, but reveals itself through specific actions pouring out of that compassion. It's like the motto of the rescue mission, faith with its sleeves rolled up. This virtue is a lively emotion of the heart, which is stirred up by the discovery of suffering of, or need of another, which manifests itself outward, outwardly by action. So, Christian must ask oneself, why should I show mercy? Well, one reason is uh, because the alternative is not particularly pleasant. Uh, Matthew 18 says, Peter came and said to Jesus, 
Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven? I mean, Peter was thought he was being magnanimous there. I mean, I would do it up to seven. I mean, if that's okay. Uh, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to the king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And Jesus recounts the story of a king who commanded a slave that owed him a huge sum to be sold with his wife and children to pay off the debt. The slave begs for patience and time to repay the debt. So the king has mercy on him and forgives the debt. But the slave then goes out and finds a fellow slave who owes him a minuscule debt and begins to choke him and say, pay me what you owe. And this, that second slave pleads for mercy and promises to repay. But the first slave throws him into prison. But the king finds out to the chagrin of the first slave. And summoning him, his king said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the king, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now here's the terrifying part. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, do you think maybe Jesus was trying to send a warning there? Paul says about those who turn their back on God in Romans 1, God gives them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. He then explains that God gives these people up to their passion so that they become unloving and unmerciful. And then he ends with, those who practice such things are worthy of death. And you might say, well, that's unbelievers, of course. I'm saved, so what? Me worry? When one is saved, one does escape eternal punishment that we call hell. But Christians do not escape judgment. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians Five, that we Christians must all appear before the judgment, the bema seed of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Christ will judge all of us who truly know him. And, but some will receive more liberality and rewards than others. Speaking to believers, James said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Now, mercy will be shown to the believer at the judgment in direct proportion to the mercy shown during the believer's life on earth. To be clear, we are saved only as a result of Christ's sacrifice on the cross as payment for our sins. Yet, our enjoyment of heaven and its rewards will be reflected on how we live for Christ, especially the mercy that we show others here on earth. James 2 ends with mercy triumphs over judgment. The believer who has shown mercy will therefore stand unafraid because that mercy will be taken into account in that Bema seat judgment. My mom uh, 
Her name was Marcella, old-fashioned name, and uh, called her Marcy for short. And no matter what my sisters and I did to mess up, to sin, after her correction, and she did correct us, she was always merciful. And Marcy became a synonym for mercy. To know how to balance these things requires discernment. For criminals, the usual argument for justice is that the offender must be taught a lesson so that he doesn't offend others again. And that's valid. So the bishop indeed took a chance by extending mercy to Valjean. But when one is out of balance in either direction, the consequences can be devastating. Justice without mercy, like truth without love, is really harsh. Mercy without justice is equally disastrous. For instance, in parenting, while children of authoritarian parents tend to rebel, children of permissive parents often end up as spoiled, self-centered brats in adults' bodies. Worse yet, the heresy that God is all love, mercy, without justice said that Christ, says that Christ's suffering on the cross means and did nothing. But Paul makes the point that the cross has a purpose in 1 Timothy 1. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ, may demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Again, question, why should I show mercy? Perhaps a more important reason is because everyone here who has genuinely accepted the work of Christ on the cross as the means of their salvation and repented of their sins, has already received mercy. Paul understood the purpose of the law and the importance of justice. He took seriously Jesus' admonition, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He also understood the balance of mercy because he recognized himself as an unworthy recipient. He understood God's mercy flows only to those who repent. 1 John 1 says, if, you, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lesson here is we are called by God not just to receive, but to show mercy. Each of us ought to remember, when we come across another overtaken in a sin, but by the grace of God, there go I. Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. However, some of you were such. Such were some of you. 
but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of God. Yeah. I suspect that everybody in the crowd that was listening had committed one of those sins. But they received, upon confession and repentance, their salvation and forgiveness. But we have to understand that only comes at the foot of the cross. You know, the merciful has a completely different view of the world, having compassion for ungodly people who will perish if not rescued. The mercy are, merciful are gentle to the weak, generous to the poor, forgiving of the offender. They lend a hand to the needy, sympathize with the afflicted, and pick up the fallen. I need to take a short uh, aside here and address uh, our current historical situation. June 24th will go down as a significant historical day. Uh, and if you all have, haven't had your head in the, in the sand, you know that there's been a substantial reaction. I want you to think about the situation as it is right now. Most of the people in our country have lived during the time of Roe v. Wade. Okay? So in their minds, for all of a sudden, that right to be taken away is hard to accept. Now, just so you understand, the United States Supreme Court did not ban abortion. All they said was, it's nowhere in the Constitution, and it's, we're going to stop having a majority, just five of us, decide how and when you can restrict abortion, if at all. And we're going to leave that to the people through their elected representatives in the various states, which, as Mike has already explained, we won't have any restrictions unless the amendment passes in a month. Okay? So, the question is, how do we Stop this scourge. I don't agree with the decision. That may shock you. Because biblically, I believe that all people, all children, whether they're in blue states or red states, whether they're in or out of the womb, are sacred, are made in the image of God. But we're not going to have that until we get maybe a constitutional amendment in the U.S. Constitution, which is pretty difficult to do. This is the best that we could hope for. But now the work is just beginning. The question is, are we going to be effective? Not are we going to just change laws. Are we going to change hearts? So, as you've already seen in the news and perhaps you've seen it around town, there are rocks being thrown, both figuratively and literally. The question is, do we pick up the rock and throw it back? Do we return evil for evil? Or do we do what God's word says? We return good for evil. Think about it. Why did we, why did we get abortion? A lot of reasons. But I think the most significant one is that men were irresponsible. Women were desperate, who didn't know Christ, were desperate for love. And they wanted a way out of their consequences. 
What we need is not just laws. We need a change in the culture that glorifies marriage and the family so that we can have fathers in the home so we don't have as many kids who are totally lost. That's what we need to be working toward. Yeah, I know. We've got a ways to go in many, many states and perhaps in in Kansas. But let's keep that in mind. We need to be careful how we respond. Now, there's, there's, there's always a balance. There's a caution. We must not allow our mercy to become self-gratification, okay? You know, you've heard the saying, it's, it's better to, to teach a man to fish than it is to give him a fish just because it makes you feel good, okay? That's a problem with a lot of ministries. We're just handing stuff out uh, without training and that sort of thing. Okay, getting close here. Is there anything God cannot do beyond that logical trick of can God make a rock he can't pick up, you know? All right. Uh, Well, we would normally say God is omnipotent. He can do anything. Uh, But uh, there is something God cannot do. The greatest example of mercy is that of Jesus Christ. God himself, King of Kings, creator of the universe, with the power to give each of us exactly what we justly deserve, an eternal punishment. He humbled himself, came down as a man, lived a perfect life, carried the cross to Golgotha, and even before in the garden, he realized, he knew that he, even though he was fully God, he was fully man, and he would suffer fully for all of our sins, the sins of the entire history of the world. Why him? Why make a sinless man go through such agony? Because God cannot, he cannot deny his own nature, which is true justice, which demands payment for sins of the world, and at the same time, he is true mercy and true love. When you think about it, it was your sin and mine that put Jesus on the cross. But in the very act of dying for us, Jesus personified mercy when he cried in his agony on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So in the end, are we not all just like Valjean? Wicked, undeserving criminals who have received mercy. I know I am. You know, as I go through these uh, Beatitudes, please understand, I have stumbled and fallen on all of these. But we need, to, we need to shoot for what God calls us to do and not be drugged down by our own failures. So shortly as we take the Lord's table, I urge everybody here to consider and confess how we have failed to be meek, failed to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and failed to be merciful. So if you would, uh, stand with me. Have you got this on an overhead? Thank you. And uh, uh, we're going to uh, look at a passage that ends one of the major passages on the Lord's table. Uh, Okay, let's go together. So, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, 
just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be 